Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and VIM, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Joining me in the studio today is Ana Pinto da Silva. Ana is the CEO of Minka Incorporated. Ana's work synthesizes her interest in design, storytelling, architecture, and emerging technologies with her deep passion for creative collaboration. She previously served as a principal for UX design at Amazon, and prior to that, did meaningful work at Microsoft and served as an architect at MBBJ. Anna is both a graduate of Berkeley and the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University. Jonathan Salk is the co-author with his father, the late Jonas Salk, of the book, A New Reality, Human Evolution for a Sustainable Future. A graduate of Stanford University and USC School of Medicine, he completed specialty training in psychiatry at UCLA Geffen School of Medicine, where he is currently assistant clinical professor. He is in practice in Los Angeles and is a senior fellow of the Design Futures Council, as well as a member of the advisory board of the Population Media Center. I'm pleased to have them both in the studio with me today. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's nice to talk to you. Likewise, Dave. Thank you so much for having Jonathan and I on with you today. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm going to pose this first to Anna, and then Jonathan, if you would jump in when she finishes for a response. Uh, you know, given our current cultural context, one where youth and adulthood is privileged over childhood and elderhood. Now, this is it's a really an interesting distinction here because we talk about where uh, the difference between youth and childhood, youth, that idea where we enter adolescence and then we move up into our 20s and everyone is, is celebrated for youth and beauty and talent and energy. And adulthood is when we've supposedly hit success and we're feeling really good about ourselves. Uh, this cultural context where youth and adulthood is privileged over childhood and elderhood, that later part of living. What are the central challenges faced by young children and families and, and older people today? Anna, you've done tremendous research in this over the years and are now leading a powerful organization to address one part of this bookend of life. How do you respond to that? Thank you so much. That is such an important question. And where my mind goes is really that science is culture and culture is science. And, and what I mean by this is that human longevity is one of humanity's greatest achievements. And it is the result of layer upon layer of technological and scientific and cultural sociological advancements. Anything from uh, better nutrition, uh, the introduction of fertilizers, looking at uh, penicillin, the polio vaccine. Thank you, Dr. Jonas Salk. Um, all of these have contributed significantly to widespread human longevity. 
people could live long lives throughout history, but it was really only at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, that we started to see more and more people be able to access long life. And as a result, new life phases emerged. So, for example, teenagerhood was really a, a term that was developed in the early 1900s by a psychologist, and it wasn't really widely used for maybe 20, 30, 40 years. So, we had an emerging life phase. One of the first is teenagerhood that was a result of longer lives. Today, we're at a place where so many more people are able to live long lives, but in, unfortunately, we're living those long lives less well. And the reason for that is chronic disease. And chronic disease cuts across all generations, but it underpowers and undermines the magic of childhood, and it compromises fundamentally the beautiful trajectory that we theoretically can have in later life. So to answer your question, I really think that a lot of what we're seeing is that intersection of science and culture and how we can bring to bear the, the true promise of, as you say, these bookends of life, childhood and older elderhood, older adulthood to their fullest power. Yeah. Jonathan, some thoughts on this? I, I'm going to look at the other end of the spectrum, Anna, and kind of look at childhood. And one of the broad perspectives about our current cultural context is that we're, as a world and as a society, we're in the midst of a significant transformation, if we can do it, from a society where everything's based on growth and independence and competition to a time where in order to survive and adapt to our population and planetary limits, we need to be more interdependent and cooperative and pay attention to values like sustainability. If we look at where those basic changes in human nature are, one of the, the bulwarks of that will be childhood and the quality of each child's life and the quality of childhood and that experience. And that's an essential part of this kind of transformation and what we're going to do and how what sort of world we're going to be in. And if we neglect both the elderly and the children, society as itself is going to suffer and will be less good for everyone involved. So that I think a focus on these, you know, what you call bookends to life, Dave, is actually a focus on quality of life throughout the lifespan. And and so it's that quality of life it, it, from the time we're born all the way to the time we pass, that quality of life is what's at risk. And it's so interesting because we may see the marginalization of childhood at the beginning where children are kind of dismissed or or, or they're left with with no discipline or in the sense of investment in their life by parents. Mm -hmm or they're just completely neglected almost, right? And then they enter this youth space and this adulthood space, if I can use the technical term, pretty screwed up. <laughs> and, and, and then often live their later years, their, their elder years in regret for so much of the life that they've lived. And we have this opportunity it seems like to speak into this. So, Jonathan, I'm asking the question, what's at risk? Uh, 
What are the challenges significant to the broader population when youth and older people are marginalized? What, what fundamentally is at risk? Well, I think one of the biggest things that at risk is that if youth and the, the children are marginalized and education and nutrition and early care, all of those things are neglected, then what's really at risk is the stability of our entire world and our entire society, if I can kind of make a, a broad statement about it. Because children who are broken up, who, who, are, who are brought up and grow up traumatized or afraid or angry and acquisitive lead us toward a more factionalized and more acquisitive and kind of alienated society where we are all operating on different levels. And so, I mean, I, I really do believe that paying attention to the quality of childhood, not doing that really places our stability and our ability to adapt at risk. Is this a, a socioeconomic dynamic? That is this idea of marginalization and neglect. Is it that people who are income challenged versus the wealthy, does this cut across the whole thing? Or have you observed in your, your work that there are socioeconomic drivers to this? In other words, is it a common problem or is it a, a categorical issue that is categorized by socioeconomics? I think it cuts across and it's, I think it is in two ways of a socioeconomic issue. There are vast differences in the quality of life at different ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. But the solution to, to improving the quality of life is very much a, a socioeconomic and a political one, where we will actually need to make changes in our socioeconomic structures and in our political world in order to change the values around so that we're valuing the quality of life of children and of the elderly, which then would have a positive effect on the entire society. So let me pull on that political string a little bit. When you say changes in our political life or systems that have a direct implication, if not ramification into this space, expand on that. Tell me what that means. It's a large question, Dave. I mean, I think first, first I want to say that politically, the political and, and economic systems that we live in currently have been based on growth and competition and acquisitiveness. And those values run throughout society all the way through the care of children and the structure of our communities and the structure of our workplace. And looking at it very broadly, those political and economic systems that were based on material growth and measuring our success by material growth at the expense sometimes of the well-being of individuals is problematic to say the least. And so that if we want to change people's experience, we have to make the change across economics and politics as well. Yes. Yeah, I, I, this acquisitive uh, dynamic, this obsession with more, uh, with more wealth, with more production, with more, more, is, uh -huh. really, is, 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 is both a democratic and a Republican problem. <laughs> well, we might call it an, uh, a, a capitalist uh, obsession almost to the point that more is always more instead of understanding that it's creating less. I agree a hundred percent. The one of the creative challenges we have moving into the future is developing some, I think, novel economic systems 
that are substantially different from, if you want to use the word capitalism, it's definitely there. And we, we really need to, to put things together in a, in a different way and adapt to you know what's going to be a very different world. Yeah. Uh, Anna, when we are talking about this, I, this, this awful dynamic of marginalization, how, how does marginalization create stressors in other areas when youth and older people are marginalized? What, what are some of the manifestations of this marginalization in life? Well, you can look at life expectancy, right, to, to think about the impact of economic disenfranchisement. You know, one of the most telling examples of the impact of structural racism is, is end-of-life wealth accumulation and life expectancy writ large. There's almost a 14-year gap between life expectancy for, let's say, a white woman in the United States and a Black man in the United States. I will say, though, Thinking about age-based segmentation is not always so productive. I would invite us to think more about continuums and even to push on this concept of bookends of life, meaning that our opportunities, choices, and experiences impact us at an epigenetic level, and they're transmitted across generations, much like wealth creation has intergenerational impacts. So generations are really connected one to the other, right? Our lives don't start and stop with the moment of our birth and the moment of our death. And to to both you and to the points that both you and Jonathan were making, we are moving into a new paradigm. Now, paradigms emerge slowly and then all of a sudden. I don't think that we fully let go of the 20th century, you know, even though we're at the quarter mark almost of the 21st century. Derrida had a wonderful quote. He said, the 20th century ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the 21st century began to emerge with the advent of the internet. Right. And we're really still exploring that shift. Right. Here we are, you know, almost in 2025. You know, you can think about that. But we're still really within this embrace of a very capitalist structure with a very thing based economy. But that is changing. And I think COVID has really revealed not only the impact of structural racism with an incredibly clear light, but it's also underscored something really beautiful and fundamental, which is how important we are to each other and how much we love each other, right? That relationships and community are truly our greatest superpowers. And I would say the third thing that COVID has really underscored for us as people is the importance of nature. Now, COVID is something that we will eventually overcome. But what is not necessarily true is our ability to overcome the impacts of climate change. And it's really climate change that's going to force a reckoning. And we, I think one of the issues that we have at this moment is a generalized fear of the future. But in point of fact, there's so much wonderful that we can bring forward through ingenuity. And that ingenuity is going to be brought to bear by working in truly interdisciplinary and profoundly intergenerational ways. So I feel that there's a lot of hope. And there's a lot of generative power in this moment. It, it, it's, an, it's an extraordinary time to be alive. I, I am 
I couldn't be happier. I'm sorry that I'm this old. I wish I, <laughs> I think sometimes, gosh almighty, I wish I had 20 years younger. But then I think I wouldn't want to live that 20 years again. So <laughs> anyway, I'm kind of happy where I am at the end of the day. But when I look at where we are, and we know that children and older people are often considered the most vulnerable members of society. We know that uh, children seem so vulnerable to harm, whether it's emotional harm or physical harm. And in older people, it's, it's really the same case. However, we know that there are these incredible strengths that both of these groupings have. Uh, can, can we discuss some of those strengths and share why we think they're important at this critical inflection point around equity, climate change, health? Uh, could we talk a little bit about this? We'll call them, Anna, you often refer to them as superpowers. What are the superpowers of our friends as children and our friends in the elder category that we should be focused on? I have two words for you. The first is wonder, and the second is legacy. Mm. And I, I think those two words are, are deeply interrelated. Anyone who has the privilege of living with a younger person, a child, has the opportunity to have a unicorn in their life. The sense of wonder, the sense of moment, the sense of stopping time to embrace beauty and curiosity, fundamental curiosity, the, the, the age of the why, why, why is so powerful. And it, it does stop us and it sort of suspends time and it allows us to reconnect with ourselves and the world around us in, in a way that is uh, that transforms who we are. It's impossible to be a parent and, and remain the person that you were before you had children. Children allow us the opportunity to curate and to move forward with what's truly important. And this is incredible for all people. On the other side, as we all start to experience longer lives, we have a new and emerging life stage, which is incredibly powerful. And this is the legacy phase of our lives, right? This is where we understand that though our personal lives are not infinite, we are connected beyond the bookend of our life into future generations through the choices, relationships, and investments we make in the world around us. And in fact, the legacy phase of our lives can actually start as early as childhood, right? So it's not necessarily age-based. If we use this mindset, right, you can start to imagine that the intersection of wonder and legacy propel us forwards towards a truly revolutionary place in the history of our world. It's pretty special. Wonder and legacy. What say you? Jonathan Salk, about wonder and legacy? Or do you have other descriptors that you want to add to this question about these superpowers of these two bookend folk? Anna has put it in a lovely way, um, and I can only emphasize my agreement. I think I can extend it or amplify it in a couple of different ways. One is that on, on the child end of life, what children bring is potential. And we as human beings have the potential for a wide range of behaviors and 
ways of getting along and the ways that we treat each other. And children bring with the potential for pro-social activities as, as well as anti-social activities. You know, quite naturally, being pro-social is something that can be encouraged and something that, that can be tremendously generative for us as a society. And on the, the word that I would add to legacy would be wisdom, that there is a life acquisition of wisdom that if we can tap into it, can bring just a great deal to, to our world and to our society. And having the connection across the generations from children through teenhood, through adult life, through older phases of life, gives us a more integrated and a more cooperative society. So I think that, that there's a tremendous amount that we can bring into, into our world to make it a healthier, more balanced, more adaptive society that mm. flows from both of those populations. Well, this is a fantastic ideas. Uh, the, I think of wonder and wisdom, so I'm going to... This has been part one with a conversation with Ana Pinto de Silva and Dr. Jonathan Salk. Stay tuned for part two. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.